Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. We've been talking about various aspects of higher education. Part of this is because, of course, higher education has come under a good deal of scrutiny in the last few months. I've mentioned that confrontation between Elise Stefanik and the three presidents of Harvard, MIT, and Penn. But that little episode was and is connected to much larger overarching questions. What is higher education supposed to accomplish? Are students literally getting their money's worth? While I resist the idea that students are customers and that the customer is always right, there's no question that potential students can vote with their feet. I've mentioned that one of the main reasons for college costs rising is that college consumers, by which I mean college students, are being lured by upscale dorms, great cuisine, and many amenities. But otherwise, colleges are going to great lengths to attract customers. Of course, graduating high school students may decide to skip college altogether. In any case, all is not completely well with the academic world, though I'm not here to pronounce its passing. I do worry, however, with the kind of intensive experience that people often or even usually have at college is perhaps going to become so expensive that only the select few can afford it. That would not be a good future on many different levels. I first started hearing seriously about academic bullying when I moved to the UK. It soon became clear that bullying was a serious problem in the UK academic world, though I've come to realize that it's a problem in many countries. Although I don't want to spend time exploring this point, I do think it's worth mentioning that adult behavior isn't nearly so different from child behavior as we would like to think. In other words, the kind of bullying that goes on when you're a kid in school doesn't simply disappear as you grow up. Instead, it becomes more refined, more hidden. The adult bully seeks to hurt the victim, but in ways that are less blatant or obvious. Bullying becomes almost something like an art form. Now, let's take a look at an article that appeared in The Guardian. That's a newspaper in the UK back in 2014. It's signed Anonymous Academic, which already tells you something important about bullying. If you are the subject of bullying in the academic world, it may be very difficult to do anything about it. Reporting it to your boss may result in you being blamed for somehow having done something wrong. Here's the opening paragraph of that article. The first time my department chair was hostile to me was during a private lunch moments after I expressed curiosity about their field of specialization. The second time was a humiliating email copied to college administrators. The third time was dressing down in front of an administrative assistant. For anyone familiar with workplace bullying, this is known as repeated mistreatment, or more euphemistically, escalated incivility. These moments, each taken separately, might not be so hurtful as mere discrete events, but it should be clear that taken together they represent a very distinct pattern. We're not told anything about the humiliating email, but being told off in front of a colleague, and in this case a junior colleague, is surely gratuitous. The author cites the definition of bullying from the Workplace Bullying Institute in the United States, 
the very fact that there is such an institute tells you something right there. And here's the definition. Abusive conduct that is threatening, humiliating, or intimidating. Work sabotage or verbal abuse. The author writes that, and here I'm quoting, bullying like harassment is often performed in secret, hard to prove, and operates along a continuum. The author notes that the first instance of bullying was over a private lunch. In such a case, it's just your word over the other person's word. The problem of being hard to prove is not merely a matter of bullying done in secret. There may be actually bullying done right out in the open. But if no one else sees what's going on, it can easily remain something that only you see. In other words, bullying may be hard to prove. Like sexual harassment, bullying is sometimes only visible if seen in the proper light. Let me point out that the author identifies him or herself as teaching somewhere in the United States. There's a further clue. There is a picture of a black woman on the top of the page, and underneath that is a caption that reads, According to a U.S. survey, women and ethnic minorities are more likely to experience workplace bullying. I wish that statement had just a little bit more context and also uh, told us a little more. Was that survey done with workers in general, or was it uh, conducted with workers at colleges and universities? It would seem to be the former rather than the latter, since the data references workers. In any case, the survey found that 38% of workers have personally experienced or else witnessed bullying over the course of their lives. We'll be hearing other stats as we move along. The author goes on to say that over the course of six months, he or she, and now I'm quoting again, counted at least 10 instances where my head of department has acted in ways that are demeaning, intimidating, disrespectful, and disheartening. Here's one of the instances cited. Evidently, students had made complaints about the author's course. Normally, such complaints would be routed to the professor. But, of course, students who are unhappy, sometimes don't want to confront the professor. They're a bit too embarrassed to do that, so they go to the department chair. A good department chair is going to be polite enough to listen to the student's complaint and then suggest that the student go talk to the professor. If the department chair decides to intervene, then that undermines the authority and competence of the professor. In short, it makes the professor look bad. Here's another aspect of that bullying same person. My head tried to sabotage one of my research grants by insinuating in an email to the granting agency that I was unworthy, then failing to inform me when the grant was awarded. When I contacted the agency and discovered the good news, my head forbade me to engage in any further communications with the agency and went into micromanagement mode for all of my grants, dictating how I spent the money. In case you don't know, a key aspect of the department head's job is to be able and willing to promote the welfare of everyone in the department. To communicate an email that someone in your department who is applying for a grant is somehow unworthy of such a grant is a huge problem. If the chair of the department really thought the person was not worthy of such grant money, 
that would first need to be communicated to the professor. That would not be a pleasant thing to do. But it would be the only ethical thing. In other words, if the only letter of recommendation one could write for a student or another professor would be negative, then it would be best to excuse oneself. Now, one might ask, why would the chair micromanage this person's grants? Consider what the professor writes. Most heads of departments are overwhelmed with administrative duties, so it is highly unusual for them to oversee a relatively small grant. I think that's a fairly accurate statement. I think back to when I was chair of the department, and I don't remember any grant in particular during that time, but it's simply not the chair's place to manage a grant like that. So then you're left asking, why does the department chair want to micromanage a small grant? Is it jealousy? Maybe the chair isn't good enough to get grants. Now you might think, well, why did you immediately go to jealousy? One reason for suspecting that is the chair doesn't inform the professor that he or she has received this award. That sounds very passive aggressive to me. And just to ward off a particular question, it's usually not the case that department chairs are chosen on the basis of their scholarship. Yes, I think in the old days that was the case. Uh, it was the case that often uh, the distinguished person was the head of the department. But today it's not so much of an honor. Instead, it's the thing that gets passed around the department like a hot potato. It might be that you're the one who publishes the most in your department or you do other things the department values. But if it's your turn to be chair, then you have to take one for the team. The author goes on to make that point that his or her university hasn't developed any policies to deal with bullying. So, to quote the author, everything my head of department has done is perfectly legal. And this is often the way things are. Since there are no explicit standards of what constitutes bullying, people can get away with a lot of questionable behavior. There's an example that's useful for making this point which also makes the point that bullying can be done in the open and to multiple people at once. In a post titled Bullying in Academia, a disheartening Q&A, Karen Kelsey responds to an anonymous question that's worth quoting in full. I have been in a tenure-track job, now tenured, for seven years. Uh, just as a aside, you normally wait seven years to go up for tenure, so this person would have just received tenure. The entire time at this job, we've had an abuser and bully in our department. We have told the administration over and over again, presented documentation to every administrator, and have talked with HR multiple times. The university does not have a code of conduct policy, only a sexual harassment policy. He is one of 11 people in the department, and nine are the ones that are meeting with administration over and over. The administration has done nothing, and the bully keeps claiming academic freedom as his ability to do all that he's doing. For instance, if he is removed from a department meeting, he claims academic freedom to attend. We have not met in person as a department of over two years because of his bullying. I was recently diagnosed with PTSD because of this abuse, but I'm not sure whether to bring this up to the administration and have that in my records. Any advice on what to do? Will legal help? Will legal help help? <laughs> and if so, what type of legal help? Thank you so much. Can you imagine what it'd be like to be in that department? 
the fact that they haven't gotten together in person for two years, it makes you wonder if the department's really functional. Since this is the question for the post, the rest of the post consists of responses to this person, and I'm going to read some of them. The first one goes like this. Do not include mental health information in university records. I don't care how progressive you think academics are. The university is a profit-driven machine, and as such is inherently and fundamentally ableist always. Do not do it. In other words, this colleague is warning the other colleague that universities either don't care about your trauma, or worse, if it's useful to them, they'll use it to your disadvantage. Another response, which this is a very interesting one, suggests using the gray rock technique, uh, which he or she describes as limiting all communication to boring and monotonous responses that are restricted to the bare minimum that is required while eliminating small talk, asking any question, and sharing information of personal life and any successes. Given that toxic people thrive on continued conflict and emotional reactions, the use of gray rock can reduce repeated attempts of unwanted communication. I have to confess that it was only in preparing this episode that I discovered what this technique actually is. The name almost gives it away. Whoever notices or remembers a gray rock. Ellen Byrus, a therapist in Georgia, writes that, and now I'm quoting from her, this strategy involves becoming the most boring and uninteresting person you can be when interacting with a manipulative person. So the basic idea here is that manipulative people like drama and that they're looking for some piece of information they can use to manipulate you. If you have to talk to such a person, Beerus suggests avoiding eye contact and responding with answers like, mm-hmm, uh-huh. She notes that, and I'm quoting again, toxic people, particularly those living with a narcissistic personality, are often looking for attention. By giving your attention to other activity, you're sending the message that you won't give them what they need. As you can see, the basic strategy here is you just make yourself as boring as possible so they'll leave you alone. Let's turn to another response. This is the reason I left academia. It took me years to recover! Exclamation point. One semester when given a new office, the man who was set to move into my old office got impatient. He wanted me to move faster. So he went in my office and had students help him throw all my books and belongings onto the floor of the new. This was just one experience of many. This was not limited to males either. One colleague, a female, threw a stack of papers at me at a school meeting, calling me a, and then uses a word that begins with a B that I don't like to use because I find it misogynistic. Alas, it's disturbing that a pattern is emerging. The person who has written this is clearly a woman, and one might suspect that men are particularly guilty of bullying. I have at least so far seen no data one way or the other, but it is a question that I ask in my mind. I don't really know how to answer it. Now, it also strikes me that this might be an appropriate place to mention that at the school where I taught, female faculty members were often poorly treated by male students. Instead of addressing them as professor or doctor, male students would often call them Mrs. So-and-so. The simplest explanation for this behavior is that such students came from homes and churches where 
in many cases, women were not allowed to teach or preach. While their behavior was, at least as far as I can see, thoroughly inexcusable, the question to ask is, what would it be necessary to change it? In effect, it was a theological problem. Students could always cite those Paul passages about women being silent and not being allowed to teach. In a recent article of the literature on academic bullying titled Bullying in Higher Education, an Endemic Problem, Malcolm Tite notes that the literature on bullying in academia has grown exponentially. <laughs> and, and when I discovered this, I was so shocked. He has found nearly 700 articles on the topic in multiple languages, focusing on the situation in multiple countries. Consider this definition of bullying from the National Center Against Bullying in Australia. Bullying is an ongoing and deliberate misuse of power in relationships through repeated verbal, physical, and or social behavior that intends to cause physical, social, and or psychological harm. It can involve an individual or a group misusing their power or perceived power over one or more persons who feel unable to stop it from happening. Bullying can happen in person or online via various digital platforms and devices, and it can be obvious, overt, or hidden, covert. I suspect that much bullying takes place in private, but this definition reminds us that it can be right out in the open. And of course, the typical excuse given by those who bully is often academic freedom. Yes, in the name of academic freedom, someone may be able to destroy your work. But let's consider one more definition of bullying. This one comes from the American Psychological Association. Bullying is a form of aggressive behavior in which someone intentionally and repeatedly causes another person injury or discomfort. Bullying can take the form of repeated contact, words, or more subtle actions. The bullied individual typically has trouble defending him or herself and does nothing to cause the bullying. Cyberbullying is verbally threatening or harassing behavior conducted through such electronic technology as cell phones, email, social media, or text messaging. One thing I've learned about academic bullying, the people doing it may not fully understand what they are doing. In other words, the bully might be thinking that he or she is merely providing good criticism of an academic paper. Or consider this example. When I told a professional philosopher that I was working on my master's thesis and mentioned the topic, uh, this person's simple response was, didn't Wittgenstein solve that problem? Perhaps the thrust of that comment isn't clear enough. I found it incredibly dismissive. What do you say to a comment like that? No, Wittgenstein was stupid and knew nothing about it. Well, of course, that's what you'd like to say. But this person was a senior member of the department, so of course I couldn't have said that. It was only later that I was able to see this for the passive-aggressive kind of bullying that it is. In case you don't see it, here's how it goes. The person suggested someone has already answered a question one is trying to answer. The implication, of course, is that you're either stupid or ignorant for not knowing that. In the academic world, junior faculty, almost by definition, are going to have trouble defending themselves. If you're an untenured professor and someone in your department bullies you, 
chances are that you have no satisfactory way of dealing with the problem. Yes, you could go to the chair of the department and ask for help. Of course, it might well be the case that it's the chair who's bullying you. That would be the case in the one that we talked about earlier. But let's assume it's someone else. How exactly is the chair going to stop such behavior? Perhaps a talk with the offending person might bring about a change. It's also possible, however, that now the chair gets bullied in addition to the faculty member. In case you're thinking, oh, well, that sounds a little extreme, I have seen it happen with my very own eyes. I hope I've made things clear enough. The chair is usually just a member of the department who happens to be chair at the moment. If you're lucky, perhaps the chair has good people skills and the matter can be resolved. As to the victim not causing the bullying, it all depends on the situation. So far, we've heard accounts of bullying that emphasize the innocence of the person being bullied. But I think it's important to point out that bullying sometimes comes about because someone is threatened. Maybe it's because someone's threatened by your, I don't know, intellect, or perhaps your productivity, or perhaps that mm, student evaluations are positive. In other words, it's easy to think that those who, bully, who are bullied are somehow inferior or less competent than the bullies. I'm sure there are cases in which that's in fact a story, but my point is that bullying can and often does come about because others are jealous or feel threatened by someone who's more talented or is more successful. In some cases, the problem is simply that someone is overperforming, doing so well that other people look incompetent in comparison. Or else, being such a hard worker that the person leaves everybody else in the dust. You can imagine, people won't like that. <laughs> people will not like you if you're able to get twice as much work done in a day as they are. There are also two features about the academic world that make bullying possible. One is the general hierarchical structure of universities and the academic world in general. While it's true that many organizations have a hierarchical structure, the academy thrives on hierarchy. You start out as an assistant professor. Well, of course, you might start out as a visiting assistant professor or an instructor or some other tenuous kind of title like that. You work your way up to associate professor and getting tenure. At most institutions, becoming a full professor depends on one's publications. This is why you'll see professors who've taught at institutions for a long time but are still associate professors. A second aspect is there is a competitive aspect to work in the academy. While competition could be between two individuals as teachers, in other words, their teaching ability, it's much more likely to revolve around academic presentations and publications. In the business world, there's the resume. It's usually one or two pages. The goal in, in a resume is to make it as short as possible. An academic CV, on the other hand, is almost exactly the opposite. It's a literal account of virtually everything you've done. Your degrees, the articles and books you've published, the courses you've taught, the committees you've been on, all the presentations you give at conferences, all the times you've served as chair for this, that, or the other thing, and on and on and on. Having a thick CV rather than a thin one is the goal. 
The main reason for this competition is simply that in most fields, jobs are scarce and funding, which allows you to get time off to write, which is, of course, how you get promoted, is hard to get. In any given year, there are far more newly minted PhDs than there are places for them. A further aspect of all this is the fact that if you're a junior member of the academy, you will need various people up the hierarchical chain to write letters of recommendation for you, and those people at the top of the hierarchy are the people who review articles and books for publication. They also decide who gets what funding. Alas, the entire peer review process can be an exercise in bullying. Reviewers can provide unkind and unhelpful comments while hiding behind the screen of anonymity. Of course, depending on how the author responds, there could also be a form of bullying in the response. Usually this takes the form of being dismissive of the comments. The academic world consists of various pairings. There's the relation of student to professor. I'm sure there are professors who bully their students. However, I'm not exactly saying that professors are necessarily mean to their students. That may happen too, but I'm meaning intellectual bullying, in which a certain position is held up as really the only alternative. In other words, you can either believe this or you can be stupid. Frankly, there are some aspects in philosophy in which I think there may not be more than one right answer. In other words, there's some things where I think, yeah, no, that, that position is just a bad position. But my goal is always to be as fair as possible with any position that I disagree with. But I would be remiss if I were only to talk of faculty-to-student bullying. If you're a new professor, or you are somewhat less confident about your abilities or position, you may be the target of student bullies. Students can try to rebel against the amount of reading or various things they don't like. In cases like this, the professor has to figure out how to assert authority. Yes, the usual situation is such that the professor already has the authority. My point is, it can't be lost if students perceive the professor to be weak. Students who go on to graduate school end up getting a supervisor, often the person with whom they'll work until their PhD is finished. This is another level at which bullying can take place. I'm happy to report that my relationship to my doctoral advisor was pleasant and thoroughly respectful in both directions. But such relationships, and I expect this is even more true in the social and physical sciences, can easily become one in which the professor is the master and the student is something like a servant or even slave. Then one finishes one's PhD and moves into a position in the academy. One becomes a junior member of the department. If it's a tenure-track position, that means that unless something goes wrong, one is headed to get tenure. Once you get tenure, you're still a junior member of the academy, but you've moved up substantially. If all goes well, you move up to the next level, that of full professor. Interestingly enough, what I discovered in working on this is that deans who occupy a position between professors and upper management are particularly apt to be bullied. To quote from an article titled University Bullying and Incivility Towards Faculty Deans, here's what the person writing that says. A majority of deans currently experience regular aspects of bullying or incivility. Many deans believe that an inherent part of their role is that they will be bullied, and as such, part of their role is to deal with these actions. Now, I, 
I, I don't know about you, but when I first read that, I just thought, this is just incredible. The deans take it, it's inherent to their role that they're just going to get bullied. And indeed, I can think of a certain dean who was routinely and thoroughly bullied by, well, let's just say someone. This is just one more reason why I have no desire to be a dean. It should be clear at this point that simply the way the academic world is set up makes it ripe for bullying. Academic work revolves around critique, which in many people's minds means criticism. You know, I've tried to make this point over and over again. You write a paper to show that philosopher X is wrong. Is that within the bounds? Yes. How far is one allowed to go in such a critique? What counts as fair? A point that Tite makes in his article is worth considering at some length. He writes this. Academics may get their name known not so much for their own work, but for their critique of others' work. And what may be thought of as fair criticism by one academic may be interpreted as an effort to destroy their reputation, as bullying, in other words, by another. Well, it all depends on the discipline. At least in philosophy, a good deal of work is based on critique of other philosophers' work. Alas, in this case, the word critique largely means negative. But this raises so many difficult problems. How does one determine when something passes from being critical and fair to just bullying? I've witnessed questioners, I'm putting that in square quote, scare quotes, provide such a substantial critique that it becomes clear that the project that's just been presented in the form of paper is incoherent. Here's a case I've mentioned before. I gave a paper at the department colloquium that came out to just short of 14 double-spaced pages. A colleague came to the colloquium with two and a half pages of single-spaced stinging critique. A friend of mine came to the colloquium because he was interested in the topic. Afterward, he asked me something like, is this the way people discuss things in philosophy? It was clear that he was shocked that people could be so rude to one another. But I had to assure them, yeah, that's generally how colloquium goes. It was brutal. Looking back, I don't think I realized just how much bullying was going on, not merely in the department, but in the school in general. On the other hand, I remember sitting in a restaurant with someone who was at that point at the end of his career. We were talking about what he had accomplished. What worried him was that someone was going to come along and argue that basically everything he had written amounted to nothing or even worse than nothing. In other words, you can see that senior academics might be worried about being bullied by those coming behind them. It may be helpful at this point to consider the extent to which bullying is a problem. According to research done by L. Kishley, here's the situation. Using the 12-month framework, approximately 25% of faculty will identify as being bullied. Adding in the witnessing data, the research suggests that 50 to 75% of faculty will have had some exposure to bullying in the prior 12 months. Extending the time frame to career, it appears that faculty who have no exposure are in the minority. Further, bullying of faculty is notable for its duration. There is also evidence that rates of bullying differ cross-nationally and institutionally, suggested of socio cultural influences. 
You might think these figures are high, but they're not out of line with other figures that document similar rates of bullying. In a study titled Bully University? The Cost of Workplace Bullying and Employee Disengagement in American Higher Education. This appeared in uh, Sage Open. It included a, a survey of 175 people at colleges and universities, and the author, uh, Lee Hollis, finds that 62% of them had encountered some form of bullying in the previous 18 months. 62% 18 months. In another article, Bullying and Mobbing in Academe, a literature review, the authors estimate that bullying in academia ranges from 25 to 91%. Here's one more set of stats. In 2005, the Times Higher Education did a survey of university teachers. They got 843 responses, and bullying came in at 40%. 75% of staff said that they had seen others bullied. A third of the staff reported unwanted physical contact. This brings up the problem we've skirted around so far. There are bullies and the bullied, but there are also bystanders or witnesses to the bullying. One of the difficulties is this. Do these bystanders see what's happening as constituted bullying? It's possible to imagine that people could see bullying take place in front of them and not see it as bullying. Perhaps that's because they don't understand the dynamics at work at all. Perhaps it's because it's in, in an environment that's so infected by bullying that bullying is no longer noticed. On the other hand, what should you do if you see someone bullied? I suspect that most people would respond that they don't want to get involved. Indeed, one of the frustrations of seeing bullying at work in different spaces is that it's difficult to know how to stop it. Is there a way in which you could step in without becoming a target of the bully yourself? Do you have an effective way to stop the bully? But that's all for this portion of the podcast. If you're a subscriber, head on over to Patreon to hear the conclusion. In any case, I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and this is On Becoming.